This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Any longtime listeners of the show know that I'm passionate about accessibility and disability technology. Technologies that support the idea that we can have an equitable world and that creating a more accessible world makes things better, not just for the group specifically considered in that technology, but for all of us, is a key idea to me. That's why I wanted to sit down with Suman Kanuganti, the former co-founder and CEO of Ira Tech, a high-tech company whose work helped pioneer a way to bridge the information gap for those who are blind or low vision. At IRA, Kanuganti transformed cities, airports, and universities across the country by helping to make those spaces accessible for people who are blind or low vision. After founding IRA, Suman went on to start another company, Personal AI, which is extending the principles of accessibility and mobility to the context of memory. In founding Personal AI, Suman sought to create an AI to support memory and to return data ownership back to the individuals at this critical moment, when the assumptions that used to rule the web where our personal data was the property of companies whose products we use to move throughout digital space in our daily lives. Facebook, Google, WhatsApp are now in flux. In this conversation, we talk about the concept of memory and the transformation of this concept in the context of digital technologies. We talk about the challenges of and the possibilities for creating accessibility technologies, and Suman shares his vision of returning data ownership to the people. Suman Kanuganti is the CEO of Personal AI. He holds an MBA in Entrepreneurship and Entrepreneurial Studies from the UC San Diego Rady School of Management, a Master's in Computer Engineering from the University of Missouri-Columbia, and a Bachelor's in Electrical and Electronics Engineering from Kakatiya University in India. Hi, Suman. Hi there, how are you? I'm doing well. So, Suman, I wanted to talk to you about the larger concept of cognitive technology and more specifically, the relationship between cognitive technology and human memory, which is the subject of your new company, Personal AI. So what is cognitive technology and, and what problem related to human memory does Personal AI try to solve? Cognitive technology, I think from my perspective, any augmented technology kind of helps you with your cognition, even if it's as simple as being able to recall information, but also being able to like relate things and reduce your anxiety or stress that now has some sort of an effect on your behavior, on your outcomes, on your decisions that are fundamentally drawn by the state of your cognition, I tend to think falls under the umbrella of cognitive technology. Now, in regards to the memory, you know, the fundamental thesis for this company is that people forget. But before we even landed on that particular thesis, the backstory of personal AI is like, how are we able to connect and continue to have a meaningful relationship with people that we may or may not have access to on a continuous basis? And if we, when we drill down into the bottom of like what exactly is happening in this core idea, and I can you know share a story you know once once we are deep into the conversation, is that you know people tend to forget people people forget the things that they may want to remember, people may not have proper choices other than the note taking system to be able to recall in a way that how we normally tend to do like how our natural biological memory tend to function. Right. So I think the core thesis about personal AI was, you know, are we able to create sort of this digital memory of an individual? Yes, of course, not just for recalling past and previous experiences, but also being able to use that memory as a digital memory to establish these connections, you know, beyond oneself. Like me being able to talk to you when you may not have time, may not have energy and may not have like limited, you know, availability uh, or maybe people who are not living with us anymore as well it, it's it's a concept that you know at the basic not just about uh, cognition but i think it's a bigger uh, problem that i think the, the the gap 
that exists between two humans connecting with each other today and in a longer period of time into the future. So one of the reasons I was actually really interested in in talking to you is because my graduate work was pivoted around questions of memory. And the idea of forgetting why and how we forget is pretty pivotal to questions of memory on a philosophical level. As far back as Nietzsche in the 19th century and Freud in the early 20th century, philosophers and theorists were arguing that we remember things that are in the service of life, things that were useful or relevant for whatever understanding of the world and the self or the community that memories were needed to support. In other words, we preserve memories for the purpose of apprehending and contextualizing our present experience in ways that allow the present experience to make sense and to provide an interpretive lens for it. For Nietzsche, again, a philosopher, forgetting is necessary. We can't remember everything. We need to forget in order to wipe away the dust, so to speak, of irrelevance or confusion or conflicting data from, if you will, our interpretive spectacles, or to simply see our present clearly unmitigated by, or to use our present terms, um, data interference uh, or static. Or, you know, sometimes I think of the great writer, Jorge Luis Borges, whose short story on exactitude in science talks about the absurdity of attempting to map reality without forgetting. Because what we need to do to remember uh, and to understand our memories is to abstract certain features from them. And his point is that in order to understand something, we have to make mental models of the things that we forget and dismiss some of those features or details in order to make sense and interpret others in, in the context of the memory that's salient. In other words, the memory that's useful. Is current research in neuroscience or elsewhere on the topic of forgetting, understanding things differently than these philosophers and thinkers already have described, um, albeit in humanistic and philosophical terms and not maybe physical or anatomical ones? Is this research doing something new or is it just making what we already know sound kind of sciencey? Or is there actual new information about forgetting and memory emerging? Very interesting. So the interesting thing is like I have read many papers around neuroscience uh, and how it explains memory and the concepts of it, you know. One thing that was common is this acceptance of, okay, people forget, and we have to accept the idea of forgetting as well. Now, you know, like you said, we forgetting may be a natural thing, and I, I believe so, yeah, it could be a natural thing, but, you know, are we wiping away too much or too little? Do we have benefits of maybe having a little bit of extra more information in the age of internet where we are expected like different things. If you think about, you know, even 30 years ago, you know, some, when some of these papers were published, there was no digital footprint that is available for this idea of remembering, you know, idea of like seeking the information from the internet or from other spaces. Or how many people do you have around you? Even, you know, for example, Dunbar, Dunbar suggested you can only keep like five meaningful relationships and connections throughout your life. And maybe if you are vested in maybe 15, but anything past 15 connections, you won't be established like meaningful relationships and connections. So then the question is, okay, hang on. You know, we do have all these like friends and everything else that happens in the digital world. Like, uh, do we feel connected to them or are we not? I think what exists in terms of like memory, in terms of cognition, I think is good in, in, in regards to what we know and what probably the uh, thesis was uh, at the moment in time when the digital era did not present. And I think I would, I would pro if I'm a researcher, by the way, I'm not a neuroscientist. I, it, every piece of information that I gathered is purely with my curiosity and studying about how the memory actually uh, functions you know, with, with this core idea of like short-term memory, long-term memory, episodic memory, semantic memory, and how to be constructed. And, you know, in fact, we use like a lot of uh, the scientific methods of how to define this like memory blocks in your life as well. But back to the back to the question, um, I think things change generally. Specifically, we had to think through what are the biggest macro situations or trends that people were living before and now, right? Even like thirty years ago, I didn't have an access to a computer, right? I was growing up in India, right? The the information that you get is probably from your parents or your friends, or maybe if you go to, you know, uh, someplace else, like, you know, to, to, to university, you get information from university. But right now, we don't have those boundaries anymore, right? Um, so I think all I would respond is, I would, I would always think that research is helpful in that moment in time. And as the shifts change on how our day-to-day -day behavior is changing and how our day-to-day 
you know, applications, uh, consumption of information is changing. We may, uh, you know, introduce new methods and new research. And what I tend to believe is people forget a lot. And by having a little bit of help to augment what they forget, it will go a long way. And that's where I think it ties back into my previous company as well, uh, which you kind of alluded to a little bit. In my previous company, it was Ira, right? Ira was a technology for people who are blind and low vision to provide ultra real-time visual descriptions of something that is happening around you. So it's like, okay, that sounds great. It's an alternative technology. And the first thing that comes to people's mind would be, oh, hang on. You can help people to go from point A to point B and, you know, assist them so that they, they are like safe. But that's not actually the intention. The, what turned out to be the magical part is people who are blind in the vision, they already have their ways around getting from point A to point B. What Ira added is the enriching experience of the unknown. Is the vastness that exists in like on, on planet Earth on giving this like mental models or image models or visual descriptions of, oh, when I go to Disneyland, there are these like, you know, Mickey Mouse that you can potentially interact with, not just the audio descriptions of what Disneyland provides you. Or, you know, when you go to a specific grocery store, oh, there is an ATM here and I've been going to an ATM 15 miles away, you know, all this along. So, so I think there is something about human tendency to explore the unknown that happened very vividly for me in my life when I work with blind community. And with memory, I also tend to think the same thing, which is like this exploring of unknown and you don't know the benefits or the value of what it can create and how people like live their day-to-day experiences. I know it's like kind of a convoluted response to the research question, but at least I'm stating my philosophy on how I think about it. Well, no, I think this is really interesting uh, because it introduces what I think is actually somewhat of a difference between these two companies. Looking at, and and I should say that I have a, a passion and an interest in disability technologies. And one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about disability technologies is because I'm interested in questions of inclusion uh, and equity. There is a real dearth uh, of technologies that pay attention to and uh, seek to enhance the experience of people who have disabilities. Now, I would not call for getting a disability, but I would argue that most of us are almost overwhelmed by technologies that want to support or provide prosthetics for a memory that is not quite Uh, equipped to handle the influx of information and data that we get on a daily basis. And so I would argue that in in contradistinction to the context of the disability community in which there is a dearth of technologies, there's almost an excess of technologies uh, in the context of, of memory prosthetics, if you will. So why do we need or why should we want another technical tool to help us remember? I I am conjuring in my mind the fact that in my previous life, um, that is to say my life before my iPhone and all of the supporting technologies helped as that kind of memory prosthetic. I used to remember phone numbers. uh, I used to remember addresses. I used to remember people's birthdays. I used to remember all of the things that I had on my schedule during the day. I don't remember any things any of these things anymore, I have offloaded them uh, onto the prosthetic device called my iPhone. Um, and so I would, I would argue that after all, uh, my, in my experience at least, the problem is that there are already too many memory tools, all of which claim as their promise that they'll help us organize the information we need to know to get us through our days. And that I, in the excess of these kinds of technologies and the kind of permutations of them, I have to synchronize all of them in order to get through my day and that in addition to that, in our day and in, in, in our time, there are just too many things packed into our days, uh, which I think is not just the case for me, but the case for most people in the information age and the internet age of relentless expectations about what we should be expected to do or to produce with our time. So are the tools that we're using really helping us to solve the problem at its core? Will another tool, in addition to the, all the ones we already have, help if, as I think I'm 
hinting at, the real problem is that we're overworked and overscheduled and bombarded with just too much information, remember, on a consistent or relentless basis. We are. And I don't think all that will solve the problem that we are facing today. Let, let's break it down. So I think, I think you mentioned something very interesting that I want to probably, on a contrary, on a contrary opinion if you would entertain, is you mentioned forgetting is not a disability from your perspective. Well, I would argue that being unable to see or lack of vision is not a disability either. And in fact, that's the principle of IRA, which is it's a different ability. It's a different state of who you are and how you process information given what kind of census is available to you, right? Uh, if you do consider like lack of vision as a disability, I would argue that lack of perfect memory or a human memory is also a disability, right? So the idea of the prosthetics may exist with, okay, you know what? Um, we will essentially provide a tool for the particular disability, but as you have also stated, the prosthetic device that you use iPhone is already helping you, you know, remember certain, you know, contacts and questions as well. So technically, we are disabled when it comes down to <laughs> memory. In other, in other words, I, I think we can make an argument like either way, but from a fundamental principle standpoint, I think what is disability or the perspective or the opinion you could form is what is a different ability. And for blind people, I would consider it's a different ability to be able to comprehend, you know, the information that is given to them. And that's, a, that's actually a moment because even knowing the blind community, if we consider too much of his disability and then we kind of, you know, form these different barriers like between people, um, you know, what kind of jobs they can do. And there is uh, perceptions, uh, false perception uh, as well that kind of runs into us. Now, Going back into, you know, you know, we talked about the recall, prosthetic device, and too many memory tools. I think, I don't think about personally as a memory tool as much as a, like a connection tool, as a relationship tool. It's a, it's, it's, it's augmenting human cognition in a way that can actually establish like meaningful uh, connections and relations and how, how is it doing it? The tools that exist today, too many memory tools. If you consider them in the category from a technical standpoint, it's like note-taking tools. They may be providing organization of information, right? It's a method and it's a methodology that these tools are giving you to be able to recall information in case you need them. So that's not technically helping you remember things. It's giving you a mechanism for look up or go back and look for things. But what if with the advancement of technology, you can indeed create that recall experience that is more closer to how we ambiently recall things biologically, right? Uh, what do I mean by that? We struggle for the context. Whenever we, I'm trying to recall information in the note-taking tools, first of all, I don't know where to look for. And second thing, you would still have to remember the specific keywords or specific organization of the information to look for. So the problem I think we are trying to solve is not necessarily like the memory tools as much as how smart the technology can get given a specific piece of context or specific piece of thought that in the moment going on would quickly surface the exact construction or the synthesis of the information that you may previously had that is the composite or a collection of many different things that you consumed and you created, which is technically the notes. I don't know if it is another memory tool as much as there are adjacent issues that we are going after with personal AI, which is today, even the tools that we use, such as note-taking apps, the data that we put in all these pieces of information, the posts that we do on all the social media, the articles that we publish on the internet, there are 20 million places that we contribute our mind and our energy to, right? The conversation and the dialogue that we are having right now. And you are making of a collective internet or a collective knowledge and a collective model, you know, going back to the technical jargon, large language model, which is essentially, you know, an AI model that synthesizes a collection of the data. But what 
is how how all all this is benefiting like like an individual because right now there is no collective individual knowledge there is a collective intelligence from the internet but if i ask you that what is like one thing that you have created of all your contributions that exists on the internet we don't own anything everybody owns everything else your information that you communicate on whatsapp is owned by facebook the notes that you put in some other tool is owned by the particular group the article that you publish because you want to exchange and communicate to the audience your audience is owned by somebody else so there there are like three levels of how we think about personal ai adding value is one at the basis it has to be a digital memory wall that defines who you are as an individual how you think about your opinions your thought process your facts that makes up as you do that of course like augments you and you know helps you recall and the second thing is okay now i have a digital identity that is recallable with a simple context of you know asking questions recalling information or you know being able to you know synthesize all the information that i have to produce something uh, and that exchange of information between two people in other words like can i talk to a digital version of them when them is super busy to get some ideas around the human cognition that you may have that may be important to you right um and then the third layer is that is is that like ownership of the data meaning you we want people to own their digital life and creating a tool that not only helps them remember not only helps them connect but actually owns in its entirety their own uh, presence on the internet which we call memory stack stack is something like collection of all your memories in the digital digital world um and create a model out of it because now i can replicate the true voice of an individual in a model that is helpful not only to me but to the people around me and vice versa so can you give me a specific use case or an instance that you envision uh personal ai um providing this kind of memory landscape or memory aid uh, toward how would i use this as somebody who might who might have a memory lapse or who might need that kind of memory prosthetic yeah so i mean today i think people are using personal ai to kind of build their own sort of like second brain uh if you will right build their own voice build their own thoughts but i will tell you like you know my specific use cases as well The, the genesis of personal AI is uh, it happened because I, I lost one of my good mentors, investors, friends who I learned a term from. His name is Larry Bach, and he taught me a lot. And when when he passed away back in like 2016, I always had this mantra of like, what would Larry do? And I always wished I could talk to like Larry's AI, right? Because it's not just about that emotional connection; it's also about that intellectual exchange that used to happen between me and him. And there is a trusted uh, interactions. that i don't have to look up in 20 million different places on the internet because i trust this exchange and i don't have it anymore right so the idea of the access between the people is more deeper than just simply accessing the information from an unknown source so my use case is like being able to simply ask what would larry do in a certain context certain setting so if i could recall like his memories from his perspective because i don't have access to that person anymore now it, it could argue both ways right like because memory is kind of a bigger topic it's like a very vague and you know like okay it 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 involves in every aspects of the things that we do in my own personal sense like let's say if i say certain information to somebody i don't have to repeat it again so let's just say you know my friends ask me to like when are you coming back from you know india uh, i would want to you know get together and then i type in a message like a simple message that says i'm coming back and december 31st so and so uh, and then because i i was delayed for xyz reasons and i need to attend my sister's wedding and then later on my coworker says hey you know we are scheduling a podcast can you tell me like when are when exactly are you landing because i said that information already i don't have to repeat that because one i have to remember it two i have to construct it three i have to send it but if my ai in my own voice that understands my facts and understand my style can construct a response for me that i can simply review and click send hell yeah that changes the game because it's not just saving time it is also reducing the amount of stress for you to recall the information that is needed to construct this 
So how, how does personal AI work on a technical level? Is it related technically to other personalized AI products emerging in this moment? You mentioned already uh, large language models or LLMs, technologies uh, that can tailor responses to individualized questions, or does it work differently? It works differently. <laughs> the, the, the beauty in here there is, I think most everybody that I'm talking to right now assume that personal AI is built on top of large language model. It is not. Personal AI is actually fundamentally coded for using similar architectures that large language models are also coded for. Uh, but for the past three years, we've been focusing on extracting and, and you know emphasizing on small language models, or we call them personal language models. So we actually implemented a altogether a separate set of models that actually replicates for every person, meaning every person gets a model. Uh, which is totally different from the world of large language models. It's almost like 180-degree shift. Uh, in our case, this personal language model also uses some of the core foundational you know, elements of GPT architecture, which is like you know, generative computer and transformer. It basically uses transformer architecture. Uh, but in this scenario, we structure this data called memory stack, which is a collection of memories in a digital pattern for you, which are time-bound. And we crunch a model only on that data so that has uh, authenticity of you what do i mean by authenticity it's accurate to your voice it's stylistic to your voice and it's unique to your opinions as well so we do leverage large language models when the context is not within the memory corpus that is of one particular individual but once you form a certain uh, fact or a statement or an opinion, then everything comes off your personal language model. So it depends on how much of your breadthness and depthness of your life, your dimensions of your life, you can choose to create in personal AI that you can essentially model up. So it's, 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 a, it's your, in your hands. It's a blank slate AI that you get. <laughs> So I I don't know if you know this Simon but uh in my in my day job I uh I am a professor of English literature and I teach science fiction as a big part of what what I do. The idea of a tool that records memory seems like of a kind of science fiction novel. In fact, it is the subject of a piece of dystopian short fiction that I frequently teach um, by the science fiction author Malka Older. In uh, her short story, The Black Box, these memories are made to last forever. In, in that short story, people are implanted with librarians where they have devices that retain their memories. And the story, which seems to posit this kind of helpful tool that people can use to uh, retain their memories and preserve them and not only preserve them for themselves so that they have a chronicle of their past uh, and their past thoughts and their past actions that they themselves can watch, but also a kind of memory device that they can pass on to uh, the next generation. And while this story seems very promising in terms of what the technology offers at the beginning, it turns very quickly dystopian when the main character, a young girl, starts to realize that the memory device that she has had implanted in her retains everything that she sees and experiences, including things she'd prefer to forget. And the potential fear that somebody might hack her memory or see the things that she's remembered that she would prefer that they would not see becomes a deep paralyzing fear that stops this character from doing things. And of course, the coup de grace is that when there finally is a use and need for that memory after the main character dies and others want to know what she might have thought or experienced, the older technology on which the memory is stored is outdated. It's no longer compatible with newer devices to play it. Anybody who has formative childhood videos on a VHS uh, device knows what I'm talking about. So, okay, it's science fiction, not reality. But as science fiction, I think it offers us a powerful conceptual metaphor constellated and materialized in the piece of technology. And that metaphor that's offered by the science fiction story, as is the case with most science fiction, is a powerful meditation on the dangers of a memory device that is, while well-intentioned, ends up causing terrible harm um, in ways that, again, are not certainly intended by those who genuinely want to help solve a genuine human memory problem, but that end up, as many of our technologies do, having unintended consequences. And for me, the 
the story is both uh, entertaining and interesting and exciting, but also very predictable in the way that it posits this technology as something that can do good, as most technologies and their creators suggest that their products will, but then end up having all of these unintended consequences. So I'm, I'm curious from you, what steps or considerations do you take or would we need to take into account so as to not cause predictable harm with this new technology? Oh, wow. I have so many things to say about uh, this concept. It's like a separate episode altogether, I would imagine. But let's break it down from, you know, what you said about science fiction, right? I think science fiction is amazing. I think most of what we imagine in science fiction, you know, a form or a version of it comes to our lives, you know, in one way or the other. Personally, I, there's definitely like a lot of science fiction in fans, so I, I won't lie. But it, because even though, you know, I'm an engineer, you know, I have like a lot of scientific background, but I also love science fiction. There is a onboarding material for every new employee who joins Personal AI that tells them to watch the history of you from Black Mirror, as well as there's a Netflix show called Altered Carbon, where you basically have two concepts, which is like a sleeve and a stack. A stack is nothing but a memory, uh, which is a device, you know, that can be implanted, and sleeve is more like a, you know, a physical body, right? And technically, you know, to kill a person, you have to essentially describe this memory stack that, that can be, it's a cortical memory stack that can be, uh, uh, you know, implanted in a, in a particular sleep. And obviously, you can think of how the stories can go predictably because it's, it's, a, it's a show. It's a science fiction show. Now, we can, like, think about the same science fiction from a different angle as a different context, which is, there is a show called Upload in Amazon, which is kind of a funny show, I would think. It's very entertaining. But in, in those scenarios, you know, these memory files that are essentially uploaded to this virtual avatar that lives in a virtual world, you can erase particular memories that are also problematic. Okay, there is some improvement and it's kind of fun. So leading into the question that you're saying, okay, what are the foundational principles that we would have to all adhere to and have some common element to how we do AI when the power of the technology is kind of getting to the point where we would need to pay attention. It's like the next evolution of internet, right? Like personal computing to personal intelligence. Uh, there, is a, there is a shift. You also mentioned about intentions. Intentions may be true, but I think one of the fundamental aspects that we should have, especially when you're building a consumer technology, is the control. Is the control on how you would shape a particular piece of technology, how would you use a particular piece of technology, and how you would override a particular piece of technology. And I don't think whatever we are talking is anything different from, let's say, an autonomous car. A fully autonomous car that has the dangers of killing a pedestrian because it has missed out on a detection or a sensor fail is equally problematic. But we tend to accept some of those risks. But killing a person is not a you know acceptable risk. So what do we need to do? And that's one of the reasons why the control of human overriding in case of danger needs to exist. So how do you create those driving experience, which is giving a heads up? I'm not very confident in this particular scenario. So please take over, you human beings. So if you are in control, is a choice that the builders of those autonomous cars has to implement, and they are implementing. But it's a you know evolution process. When it comes down to AI, it's no different. And the reason why I'm so passionate about personal AI is you've got to do control. Like, for example, every AI response as part of your personal AI will come up with a specific set of scores, like how accurate it is to you, how stylistic it is to you, uh, and how relevant it is to you. That score will kind of determine how authentically it is representing you. But however, you are still in control, meaning you can essentially review it, edit it, or send it, or you can essentially change, remove that memory, delete it if you don't want it to, and then re-up a newer version of the memory on how you think about it. So I think that my one answer to you is I think, I think we've had to put the human first and then generally give choices. Let people make choices of what they would want to do, what they want to remember, what they want to forget, uh, or even like how you would control this AI output or also input. And that should be the fundamental principle for kind of every technology. We can talk about like human rights as well, like but what is rightful to a particular human? I could also debate on that one. Like is 
you know, being able to see as well. If it is being able to see right well, why doesn't blind community have some visual communication rights that exist for when you are uh, not able to speak, you have certain like mechanisms. So I think that the debates could be longer in terms of like what to think about it. But at the end of the day, that's the, the key the key aspect that I tend to take is every human is unique and has their individual opinions and they should be given right to live the way they would want. And the technology when is augmenting them should also come with those choices. So I'm, I'm having a little bit of a hard time with this because I agree with you that every in, human being is individual. And I agree with you that uh, as individuals, we should have the opportunity to have technologies that best serve our individual needs and that adapt to individual needs and that those kinds of individual needs should be a priority for our uh, tech developers and our producers in, in technological uh, developments. Um, but of course, that kind of human need to have technologies that adapt to them has to also, I think, uh, meet the kind of reality of technological production, which is that technological production is very, I think, infrequently in the service of meeting individual needs and much more frequently in the service of meeting the demands of, of profit and incentive structures on the financial level. So, you know, I'm wondering about this kind of uh, way that technological companies balance out the need to produce technologies and, and the kind of incentive structure and financial rewards for producing technologies that focus on those people who have the means to pay for those technologies, which very frequently end up being a kind of homogenous group of people, people who are primarily in the West, uh, primarily in wealthier communities, uh, primarily in the context of businesses, uh, in corporations that are using these technologies themselves to maximize profit, and then the kinds of de demands of equity and inclusion that you're talking about. So how do you as a technologist and as a tech leader balance out those two kind of competing demands? On the one hand, I think you know your, your question and your commitment is admirable and equitable um, and genuine sincere. Uh, but I also realize that you are the CEO of a company. So how do you manage those two different kind of headspaces? It's definitely hard because the choices that you make normally are different. You know, when you're dealing with like a specific, um, you know, if you're inventing something new, right, you may, you may have like many different variables, but you're probably like inventing on one particular variable and everything else is the constant. When you're building a business, getting all the elements to work in your favor and still be economically correct is a challenge. And I face that at IRA, right? At IRA, it's a technology for people who are blind and low vision, but at the same time, it like adds like tons of value and you know tons of utility. So it's like high-impacting product, but at the same time that you cannot just give it away for free because you know th th there is still needs to be some economic incentive. So... I'll tell you the story and then I will lead into personal AI because it's important. And blind community cannot afford, like, you know, the monthly experience of subscription that is associated with a, like, you know, a service that feels more for elites only. But that's not the point. The point was to sell a broader population of the blind community. So on the business side, what we have done is we've created something called, like, this access network. Access network is every retailer every brand every corporation they all have good intentions it's you know it's it's not that they don't want to serve people who are buying the community but they don't have mechanisms to do so so one of the things that we did was we basically said hey corporations hey airports hey organizations institutions if you want to do this make your location like the physical location or a digital product enabled with iowa access iowa access so every blind person who walks in there, they don't have to pay out of the pocket. They're actually being sponsored by a particular location because you are suddenly making your location accessible. So now, fast forward four years later, every big tech company, Amazon, Starbucks, Microsoft, every retailer, Walmart, Target, every airport in the country, all 50 airports in the United States as well as outside the United States, they're all Iowa accessible airports. So now there we go. There is a solution. 
for creating a sustainable business, creating an economic incentive, and at the same time, you are equally making the same amount of impact. So some of these things, when you have tension between many different variables and it has to come together a solution, it takes time. It takes time, it takes creativity, it takes collaboration, it takes effort, a collective effort. If blind community was not supporting this, then we could have not made it. Now, when it comes down to personal AI, now we are saying, okay, hang on, this is your model. Oh, guess what? We'll give you the data to you yourself, and the model is free. You can create your personal AI for free, right? So it's like, but how, as a company, we make money? We, we still do because the, the experiential aspect is not just 10x. Like, you think about 10x of like deploying an AI application somewhere, and then you have super high productivity and efficiencies to do a certain thing. No, we are looking for 100x, 1000x. We want to create a step up in the experience that you gain as a human being on a day to day basis. And that's what IRA was about for blind community. And personal AI is kind of a little bit more broader because it is dealing with like memory. And that's what at least I want to create. So now the business model right now is you still own it, it is still your model, but you know, you would essentially pay or subscribe to own your model, all as if like very similar to like owning your device. Right? You buy things. Like what what digital asset do you own? Are people own today? Nothing. Data is the biggest digital asset that exists on the internet. And no individual consumer or individual owns anything of it. So what if this is the digital asset that they should own, they should pay for, they should buy, that goes from you know your generation to the future generation, and you wouldn't be you know, you would, you would pass on your home and things like that to your other people, right? This should be the digital asset that makes up your life. So I think that's kind of where the, the business approach needs to be, not necessarily the traditional approach of, we have this data, now we need to make money off of this data. That is internet past, internet. The future of the internet has to be different. It has to be privacy-centric. It has to be human-centric. It has to create an asset for people. Let's talk a little bit more about equitable AI. On your website, you outline your vision of equitable AI. So what do you think we need to consider if we want to make AI equitable? Is it about data ownership uh, on the level of individuals owning their data as their own property rather than uh, giving over that asset to uh, other companies? Is it something else? What do you think the current inequities in AI are? What are the root causes of those equities in your view? I think at the foundation, it's exactly what you said, which is the data ownership, right? And I will give you an analogy for that. 30 years ago, before personal computing or personal computers were a thing, we had this huge mainframe, huge computers, right? And it's only accessible to large institution, institutions and government and everybody is able to use it. It creates tons of value from there, but not until, you know, Apple came out and said, you know what, if it is a personal computer, you should be able to lift the computer and take it anywhere. Because guess what, a personal computer has to be in your hands. And that's exactly why there is a handle on the computer that you can lift. So when it comes down to AI, the idea of the equitable AI is every person should have control on their personal intelligence, very similar to how you have control on your personal computer or personal laptop, right? You can, you can not only own it, but you can take it to places. And that is not happening in the data space right now. It is only happening in the physical asset space right now. And we need to consider data as your digital asset. And at the basic, yes, it does come with the data ownership, but it also not just the data ownership on how how this data is collectively benefiting you, both from a value and utility, but also economically, right? Now, great, like blockchain did some progress in that front, but it is not enough. We we have to like shape the utility, which is kind of it currently locked into the AI that was only accessible to the big tech, now into the hands of people. It's easy, right? Like just think about what happened in the last like few years, right? The mainframes, government institutions turned into smaller computer servers that will evolve a bunch of different corporations and small businesses where they can they can do their own computing and serve their customers and then eventually evolved into you know personal computers and personal phones that we have in our team as individual. And the AI thing is also happening the same way, which is, you know, earlier it was all research, like, you know, large institutions and large organizations and the government. 
and now slowly it has become accessible to you know groups of people that creates like you know AI startups uh, that happened in the last twenty years or so. Facebook, social media. You, know, you can consider every company that big tech that exists today is AI, but they're using collective intelligence in the form of you know it, 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 like solving a different problem. Now they created consumer utility. Now that has to be down to the personal intelligence intelligence level, and that is kind of the shift we are in right now. And it will be more obvious. I think probably ten years from now it will be more obvious on how AI has evolved from you know like a you know big monolithic models to small beautiful individual models that represent students. <laughs> I'm going to quote you at length here on this point because your website states that when we are building technology that simulates the human mind, it begins with the responsibility and local principles that align with human rights. We recognize that personal AI of individuals will have huge implications for our society, and we must be intentional about aligning ourselves with the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, IEEE, standards for human rights. There are a lot of complex, unanswered questions that require more nuanced answers than slogans. When thinking about some of these questions, we keep coming back, not necessarily to final answers, but to who we thought should be involved in the conversation, the stakeholders beyond the profit makers. So my background is in human rights and the interplay between tech and human rights and the damages to human rights caused by tech, oftentimes in the pursuit of profit, is something that I think a lot about. How are you thinking about the concept of human rights and its relationship to the tech sector, which is driven by profit, often at the cost of those very human rights? I think we have to go extra step. So rather than just creating for winning and making few bucks here and there, try to emphasize or focus more on what are the long-term implications of a particular startup or a particular technology, right? Sometimes moving slow is moving fast, right? You've got to, like, you've got to slow down and think about what are the particular implications? Because right now, even today, like one of the things that I see is uh, large language models are accessible and it's great. They're, you know, it creates like tons of value. But uh, and there are like you know many companies that kind of build off of it, which is also great. But when when you do have like hype cycle, when you do have this gold rush, like are we going to make mistakes? Like should we be like slowing down to kind of think through? How does the data attribution happen? You know, what is the tie back to the the, the the responsible outcome or the responsible response from an AI? Like, who is responsible for it? Is this the time for us to answer those questions? So, I think I think from a human rights perspective, I would literally truly think about not just uh, getting to the profits as responsible, which is the core motivation of a human being. But there are certain humans whose core motivations is beyond just you know profits, and I think combining or having that combination is 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 a tough thing. But I would bet there are. <laughs> so so I think um, it it just comes down to awareness, communication, being authentic, being transparent um, about most of the things that you do. And at the end of the day, you know, we can only control the things that we know. From the perspective of AI, that's that's what I represent. Well, guess what? Like, here we are, we are trying to do things in the way that gives control to the people. And that's what we will do, even if that means we are going slow, even if that means we are not going to be the winner of, you know, 100 other startups that exist out there. That's fine. We will do what we feel is the right thing to do because we feel responsible and to some other people who feel responsible as well. I heard you talk a little bit about the ways in which I think you suggest that personal AI as a model and as a technology protects human rights. I really hear you when you say that data ownership should be connected to human rights. After all, when I think of human rights uh, and, and the, the specific legal protections around human rights, I think about the right to creativity, the right to self-actualization or realization. Um, all of those things, I think, are, are deeply imperiled by uh, human rights violations. Are there particular concerns about human rights that uh, personal AI either uh, you think will protect against beyond those things that I've just mentioned? Alternatively, are there ways in which you're concerned that this technology may imperil human rights and are proactively taking steps to mitigate that in the process of developing the technology? You know, it's a very good question. I think it's it probably like goes a little bit farther down because I'm gonna prove it before I like you know not just saying it. 
but there is something beauty about the human rights and the personalized nature which is like if you, if you just think about how we remember the history today it's probably an aggregation of somebody or something like you know putting all the pieces together and writing a story from their perspective on and, and and this is what it is so so how history is remembered today is essentially told by like few people like few people out there and the wrote books you know that is on the internet etc etc you know with, with this quote unquote like the path towards artificial general intelligence right uh, 10 years from now 20 years from now when we do have this I mean, we have AGI in certain form and fashion already, but let's not go there now. You think about certain topics, certain people, or certain outcomes, it's already like a collective intelligence. So in a way, we are kind of repeating how history of humanity and like how we understand certain, certain concepts. But if you just pause there for a second and just think about, I want to remember history from the story that I would want to tell from my perspective, like my individual perspective. Are you in nature perspective? So, what if, like, years from now, every person has their own AI, their own personal AI? How the history is told is fundamentally different because internet may say this is the right thing to do, but the right thing to do is only an aggregation of people who participated in that particular survey or something, you know, to make that happen. And if you do not record a particular piece of information digitally, that means you know, it doesn't go into the weights of the you know overall calculation scientifically, right? So I don't know. I think I think I think that the truth uh, lies with that person. It, it's like what is ethical in the United States is already different than what is ethical in India or you know Middle East or in Asia. So how do you define ethics? It's basically a collection of like-minded people that will agree on something is what ethics is. That's what it is. That's the society we live in right now. But what if you have every individual perspective of their own and, you know, rightfully truth to them because they are the ones who do it. A lot of students and members of the next generation of the tech workforce listen to this podcast. What would you want to tell them or have them know or understand or think about in the context of ethics and AI as they move forward in their careers? Don't fall in love with the technology, fall in love with the problem and what you're solving for. Use technology as a foundation to what experiences you're going to create. Thank you very much, Simone.